host, Whitney Webb. Over the past couple of weeks, the chaos in Afghanistan has brought the country back to the forefront of American and international news in a way that we haven't seen in nearly two decades. It has also created a rare situation in the U.S. media and political landscape, where all sides seem to agree that the Biden administration bears the responsibility for what is widely viewed as a debacle, and I certainly will not be debating that point in this episode. However, anytime there is such a rapid and dramatic consensus in American politics and media, it gets my attention. This is especially true in this case, as the same consensus has also involved the dramatic reversal of the U.S. media's treatment of Joe Biden, who, largely up until this point, was praised by the mainstream media for his ice cream flavor preferences and was enabled by them to maintain the heavily scripted ruse that his presidency is not a sad exercise in elder abuse. This lockstep shift in consensus and also the way that the media has been portraying the Afghanistan withdrawal has seemed a bit too scripted for my taste. Uh, There's also the fact that the U.S. empire has been prepping for the withdrawal from Afghanistan for some time now, with deals having been hammered out between the Taliban and the CIA, among other power players, since the so-called peace deal negotiations under Trump. Even though Trump is no longer in office, I personally find it difficult to believe that quote-unquote permanent organizations like the CIA would throw the results of those negotiations completely out of the window just because of a changed administration, especially with a U.S. troop withdrawal looming regardless of the change in the Oval Office that took place earlier this year. Joining me to discuss what may well have been pre-planned chaos in Afghanistan is Tom Luvongo. Tom is the host of the popular Gold Goats and Guns blog and podcast, and some of you may be aware that I've been a guest on Tom's program a few times before. His content is regularly republished by popular libertarian sites, and I often find his analyses to be unique, refreshing, and insightful, even if we don't necessarily agree on every point. Tom has two recent articles out on the topic of Afghanistan and related issues. They are entitled, What if Afghanistan is more than just a failed war? And who does Davos turn to after Biden? With the latter about how the Afghanistan debacle appears to be quickly heading in the direction of an upcoming abdication from Biden. I found both of these articles to raise really interesting points that I hadn't seen any other people raise. And I'm looking forward to what I think will be an interesting discussion on a quickly changing situation that is bound to have a profound impact on international geopolitics, as well as American politics. With that being said, thanks for coming on the program, Tom. Happy to have you here. Hi, Whitney. How are you doing? It's uh, it's great to be here. Uh, happy to do this on, you know, uh, any notice. Well, very happy to have you uh, to discuss this topic. I think you've, um, as I said just a second ago, uh, had some interesting uh, takes on what's going on here. So you argued in one of your recent pieces that the current chaos that's been unfolding in Afghanistan appears to you to have been pre-planned. So what has led you to believe this? And what parties do you think are benefiting the most from the current chaos? Well, it's like, this is it's kind of the culmination of a feeling that's been going on since the Anchorage uh, uh, summit between uh, the U.S. and China. Right. It was at that moment when it became really obvious to me that oh, I just asked the simple question. What if they aren't idiots? Right. Like what if they're <laughs> yeah, what actually if it's not just incompetence all the time? Right. right. What if they're not incompetent? What if they're actually trying to provoke the Chinese? What if they're trying to be bad at their jobs? If they are, then they're really good at being bad at their jobs, right? And when you start to like go down that rabbit hole, and I, you know, at least 50 to 60% of what I do, Whitney, is just ask those questions and then kind of pause it and then bring up a, a potential scenario. I don't always believe half of the things that I even write, to be honest with you. I just put scenarios out there and then 
to spark discussion and to see if it sticks, right? If it resonates with anybody else. And it seems to me that this is beginning to resonate with people, that they're beginning to realize that they're not just incompetent. Because I figured this out a while ago. Because once we had the um, the shift in, as you brought up in your um, in your intro, we had a, a major shift in media narrative. And we've had two of them so far this year. And the first one was over the COVID lab leak theory, mm-hmm. where – we are all, you know, being sent to the gulag to be waterboarded at Guantanamo if we mention this at all. And then 24 hours after Rand Paul, you know, nails Fauci's you know, butt to the wall in the Senate, it's all of a sudden, no, you know, COVID started in a laboratory and even CNN was talking about it and everybody shifted 180 degrees. And at that moment, I said to myself, oh, this is so obvious. Then that makes sense as to why they've been incompetent in their dealings with china purposefully going out of their way to say things like the other that country taiwan like to talk about taiwan as a country to to dress the chinese down in the most ham-fisted and, and amateurish way over uh the uyghurs and and at, at anchorage right these, these are there's a pattern of behavior here and the simple truth is is that when i started to look at it that way it became very obvious to me that that and you know how I, 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 I've been singular in my, my, my approach here. Davos is doing this, all of it. And they, I think, and, and when I talk about Davos, I talk about a very loose coalition of very powerful people. And it's a coalition of people that is not monolithic in their goal. Okay. It is directed by a few and there are many factions and they all have their own agendas. Right. And. And sometimes those agendas are at, are at odds with one another. And I think that since they've gotten rid of Trump, their agendas are starting to fragment because everybody was on board with getting rid of Trump because we can't get anything done with him in office. But then once he once that was gone, then how they were going to go about the 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 you know making the world safe for globalism and communism um, that was a different story, right? So that's what led me to the moment when I watched the Afghanistan. Uh, um, withdrawal. And I realized that, well, why did we leave Bagram to, you know, when we knew we were leaving, mm-hmm. we, we knew we had 25,000 people in, 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 in country on, on, not on top of the two 2,500 troops that were there. Why would we leave the one strategically defendable airstrip airbase in the entire area? Before you know, evacuations were done, right. Before mm-hmm. evacuations. That doesn't make any sense. That has to be deliberate. That has to be the kind of thing that is deliberately incompetent in order to create the kind of situation that we have today. But that being said, I'm not even sure, looking, watching the response to t- today, I don't even think they expected all of this to unfold the way it has. I think it's unfolded very, very much outside of their, you know, out of their two sigma plot. Of what they of what they thought was going to happen, you know, within two sigmas of well, if we do it this way, this is the most likely scenario, and then when the two sigmas of that, it'll be kind of bad. But it, no, we're looking at a six sigma event because they're freaking out, and that's why I think Biden's on the hot seat now, and they have to do something because what has happened now has um, has has the, the change in Afghanistan has happened so quickly that they don't uh, they they. They hadn't planned for it. I think there's a real scramble going on right now. I'm not. Uh, it, that's the feeling I get. So um, that prompted me to ask the question. And after that, well, if Biden's going to go, 
what what are they going to do next? And I would have, like everybody else, I think, you know, months ago, I would have said, like everybody else, well, Biden goes, we'll wind up with President Harris, and that'll be the, the end of it. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. Because I don't trust that Kamala Harris has actually been properly vetted by Davos. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll discuss your view on that, um, I think, in a, in, in a second. But it, what's important to point out with her now, I think, is the fact that she hasn't exactly been spared um, from the fallout from this. No. Which no. is what you would expect if it was just going to be a, a clean cut scenario, which a lot of people expected um, mm-hmm. even months ago or even before Biden was inaugurated. Uh, at some point, Biden would step down and Harris would take over. This seems to be sort of a, a scenario that's been created that doesn't really leave, uh, that sort of makes everyone uh, or most people in the administration unclean to an extent, um, including like some of the national security advisors who, of course, can't, um, you know, justify um their actions on on their age, for example, like maybe Biden could uh, <laughs> or something like that, no. you know. Um, so there's obviously um, uh, something more complex happening here, which is something I, I definitely think warrants a discussion. But what I found uh, pretty interesting is that there's been a couple different stages in terms of the chaos that we've seen unfold in Afghanistan. So, of course, you just have the rapid pace of the collapse of the power structure that the U.S. spent roughly um, – you know, 20 years, <laughs> uh, right. you know, backing up, um, which I think was one aspect of it. But I don't think, you know, for people that have been watching this for what it is really um, found that to be very surprising. I know you didn't. I personally didn't. No, um, I didn't. As well. And, but what was interesting was uh, the sudden uh, reemergence of ISIS, uh, for example, uh, the, the bombings and stuff like that. And I thought it was very interesting uh, that that came about a day or two after the CIA director uh, met with the Taliban, um, which is, <laughs> you know. Well, I also I just think it's interesting that they were telling us that ISIS was going to was going to show up again and like bomb, you know, the and, and do something horrible at at the Kabul airport on, they were saying, talking about this on CNN on Wednesday, and then it happens on Thursday. Like, they're already telegraphing their moves at this point. Like, the, the, the reemergence of ISIS is nonsense. It's so obvious that this is, it does not make any sense to me to believe that this was not part of, you know, I hate to, I hate to put it this way, but the cynic in me says this is just all part of the script. I'm happy to be wrong about that, but my inner, my inner calc, my, my inner compass on all of this is expect the worst from these people, then go twenty percent farther, and that's about where you're gonna wind up. <laughs> so to them, to them keep to them killing seventeen Marines. That's just the eggs necessary to to make an omelet. I, I, that's the way I see it. But there's this new narrative emerging around the Kabul airport in a, a bombing incident, and apparently, at least it's being said now, and I haven't looked into the reports in detail myself, so I'm not really. Um, sure about what the sources are, but I've seen it reported enough that, you know, this is an emerging consensus um, that a lot of the casualties were apparently caused by bullets shot by American forces and the chaos afterwards, which, of course, further um, entrenches the the view that the U.S. is bungling this even further, um, which, you know, plays into certain hands. So um, as as we were discussing earlier, you know, who's benefiting most from this chaos? Um, You know, I think to an extent, just any sort of extreme destabilization of of Afghanistan is going to play into the hands um, of a couple uh, players that we can pretty much uh, think of pretty pretty easily in the demonization of um, the U.S. role there. And I just want to be clear, I obviously don't support the U.S. role in Afghanistan. That should be pretty clear. Um, 
uh, from my work, but it definitely benefits uh, some of the, the the new power structures, I guess, in, in that part of the world that are taking shape. Um, I think sure. one key player, uh, obviously here, uh, China is going to benefit from that uh, in their efforts mm-hmm. to forge, um, you know, an, a, alliances with the Taliban, gain access to a lot of Afghanistan's uh, minerals through ties with the Taliban. Of course, they have uh, wanted Afghanistan to be part of that uh, Belt and Belt and Road Initiative with their neighboring countries, mm-hmm. Afghanistan and China, um, share a border. So um, that definitely seems like one possibility because, well, we're the other superpower. We're not the superpower that's caused all of this and continues to bungle things and and what have you. So they're, um, you know, one party, I think, that um, is going to come out on top from this. Do you see any others? I see many. So let's start from the let's 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 back up for just a second. There's a point I didn't make earlier that I think is very germane to this. This is part of the reason why they're purposefully incompetent is to make the United States look as weak and disorganized as possible, because the goal here is one to embolden China to think that they have a a geopolitical advantage that they can take advantage of, which is greater than it actually is. And then looking ahead past the midterm elections, when the Republicans come back into power, if you're talking about um, blaming China for COVID, right? Which has, they've tried to, they've tried to do this, but they've certainly turned it into a, 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 a that kind of narrative. The, I think the goal here from emanating from Europe is to get the United States and China post midterm elections into a world war. Okay. Into an active kinetic shooting war. Okay. Wow. That's, okay. That, that's in, so when, do, so Europe is playing Every is playing us is playing the two sides against each other. Okay, so I don't believe I'm I'm willing to uh, to to entertain any theory about the origin of COVID. Okay, I'm I'm not I have no I have no preconceived notions even at this point as to what could possibly have happened. It could have sprung from Fort Detrick, could have come from the Wuhan. It could have been started by Davos to blame China in the first place in order as a backup plan for all of this at the end, because that would be the goal. I can read all of any, any and all of those scenarios and I can put equal probability on all of them being true. So I'm not advocating any of this. I'm just throwing them all out there. Okay. Cause I want people to think about this, but that's what I see on the horizon. That's why they shifted 180 degrees in the COVID lab, COVID lab leak theory was to start the process of demonizing China in the United States, turn an already angry Trump crowd at having had the election stolen from them. Now, when the Republicans come back to power, they're going to be angry that, oh, Trump was right all along. It was all China. When the truth of the matter is that the real the real villain here is the people that are literally trying to destroy the global economy and build it back better. Now, now yeah, that, uh, now but that before we you continue, that, though, I just I just uh, sorry if I can interrupt for a second. Um, sure. I do, I do want to stress that I think, you know, this since you're referring to them as, as Davos or the Davos crowd, I do want to stress that that particular faction of the elite has very deep ties both to the Chinese and uh, U.S. power structures, right? So like both governments. Uh, no, absolutely. Don't get don't get me wrong that I'm not absolving China of any uh, of any of, of anything here. Don't get me wrong. They're taking advantage. They're taking very good advantage of all this. And so are and so are we have American. Yeah. When you talk about Davos, it's a multinational um yeah, and think, but it is centered in Europe, okay. And there are plenty of there are plenty of traders within the United States government. There are plenty of traders within the Chinese government. Let's just not let's just call you know let's just get down to brass tacks here. And many of them work in the White House currently. So 
they are globalists first. And Davos is a particular way of a metaphor for talking about the people who meet at Davos every year to decide on what the direction of the world is going to be. It's centered around the World Economic Forum. It's mostly just an, uh, a, a group of people who peddle influence and coordinate powerful structures in and move and use them to move markets and the move and to move political systems that's what they do they create compromat they do the thing epstein bubble it's all part of that right it's and it's very real and it's very and they're at the point now where they're very open about what their plans are these i'm not nothing i'm talking about here is been is, is secret or anything they talk about it all the time it's all in the imf studies and it's all in the w, w world economic forum you know, the symposia and all of this stuff. It's right there out in the open, what they want to do. It's in Klaus Schwab's books. It's in Bill Gates's TED Talks. It's everywhere. You can find it. You can see it. So with all of that said, Afghanistan was never meant, was always meant to be left as a mess. Kind of the classic British, we're going to leave the area, but we're going to leave a mess behind that will allow nobody to control it. And they, and I right. think they really did believe that the Afghan government was going to survive. Now, let's back up to December 2016 when the diplomatic talks between the four major powers that surround Afghanistan, that would be Pakistan, Russia, China, and Iran, opened up talks led by, nominally led by Pakistan, but really organized by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. The diplomatic exit of the United States from Afghanistan and from the Taliban to start taking to to take over the government began in December of 2016. The diplomatic process started then. It has been building since then. It was working all through the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. The Trump Trump understood all this as well and part of the deal he brokered was based on the uh, on the the the, the uh uh, the progress that the Russians, Pakistan, that, that coalition of four, let's call them the Asian four, um, made in their, in their getting the various tribes within the Taliban to agree to a much different version of the Taliban than we knew in the 1990s that would take over and attempt to put together a government in Afghanistan that would include as many ethnicities or as many, you know, various Islamic sects as possible, right? Um, and that had to be driven by Pakistan. And Lavrov understood that if Pakistan led the talks, which, by the way, annoyed India to no end, of course, um, but Pakistan leading the talks would actually create a framework that could stick. So when we finally announced our pullout, everybody just switched hats because the agreements between all the tribes, all the tribal leaders got together three months ago, probably. They probably all got together in Doha. You know, where uh -huh. the Taliban has been negotiating with all the with the Arab states for months now and saying, yeah, this is what the plan is. This is what's going to happen when the Americans finally leave. You're all going to turn your rifles over. You're all going to you know, switch sides and just surrender and we're going to take over. And that's what happened. And I think they missed it. I think the I, this is a classic example of what you and I were talking about before we started recording of they have all this information, but it's all faulty information that they feed through their algorithms and their spreadsheets and their. Uh, flow charts and they missed it and it just happened overnight and they didn't know what to do because i really do think they believe that the Af the, the afghan government was going to have a seat on the table to put a monkey wrench into afghanistan joining the shanghai cooperation organization and being integrated back into the rest of central asia and i really do think that they believe that and that is not on the table today at all
Maybe. I'm not sure exactly if I if I 100% agree with that. I did write about the uh, Trump quote-unquote peace deal uh, last year in a very, like, um pretty extensive article and I sort of found it uh what that was aiming to do uh was essentially well I guess it, it was going to have the Afghanistan government there but sort of in a, in a way a little bit differently than maybe you explicitly framed it um to me it seemed like the goal of that was to have sort of the Afghanistan government work with the Taliban to essentially sure. have uh, a functional narco state um established in Afghanistan not unlike uh the Columbia uh model which has, sure. you know, a, a very CIA adjacent, uh, you know, federal government uh, working with paramilitary type groups in, in Afghanistan's case, that being uh, sort of the Taliban uh, and, and essentially continuing to feed the global opium trade in the case of Afghanistan, sure. whereas in Colombia, it's, uh, you know, cocaine and other things. So um, sure. <clears throat> I sort of saw it as a as that model, I think a lot of people have tended to sort of frame uh, the Trump administration's ambitions there as a little uh, rosier than I think they really were because the U.S. envoy to um, Afghanistan under Trump, and I think it's been the same one in Afghanistan, is this... Uh, and I forget his first name, but Khalilzad, I think, is his last name, if I remember correctly. It's been yeah, a while yep. since I wrote that. Yeah, and he is yep. as slimy as they come. And he was part of Project for a New American Century uh, and very deeply tied to um, the pipeline shenanigans that you could argue were a major factor for the 2001 invasion in the first place. Um, and yes. also very involved to things like Operation Cyclone, the creation of what would become the Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and just a lot of, uh, a lot of, <laughs> uh, you know, the mess that is there now. I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have you push back on, on my characterization of the Trump uh, peace agreement. I don't know what, I don't know what backwards and forwards and that's, and that's perfectly reasonable. Um, I, I know, I know what the Russians goal was because I well, studied yeah, that sure. very careful. And the Russians goal was to, it was to knock all of this stuff down. And so if anything, cause I mean, I've watched a lot of the, the negotiations that were going on. Like Ghani was, the Ghani government was definitely trying to, um, ingratiate itself into the SEO. There was a meeting a couple of months ago that, you know, representatives, and it was going to represent Afghanistan as opposed to the Taliban. No one really took them seriously, knowing full well that the Americans were going right. to be leaving. Yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, th at the end of the day, I wasn't surprised about the way this flipped because the diplomatic the, the real take home here is that the diplomatic work was done by all of the major powers that surround Afghanistan and they put a carrot and stick in front of the, the Taliban as well basically saying look yeah you know Europe and the US are not going to ever recognize you yeah. like you can forget that but I got news for you guys if you do what you did in the 1990s we're not going to recognize you and we'll just we'll just wall you off and if you become a hotbed for terrorism and you don't get rid of the friggin' opium trade and you don't do all of these things and, you know, this and you don't, you know, and you don't play ball, then we'll surround you and isolate you and we'll let you kill each other off in sectarian violence. Like that was the that was the carrot and stick to them. So I I think the incentives all align for this to, uh, you know, for relative stability. I'm not going to say peace, but relative stability to break out in Afghanistan over time. Because the incentives are aligned. Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the main goals of, of the peace deal under Trump was to sort of remake the Taliban as sort of business friendly in the sense of 
stability so that economic projects could continue. Um, and uh, the Taliban as it is now, I mean, there's been people talking about the quote unquote new face of the Taliban since recent events have transpired. Uh, they, they've claimed that they'll allow uh, U.S. corporations to continue to operate to an extent and things like that. There already is, um, you know, <laughs> some notable uh, differences there compared to how things uh, were in the 90s, though. I mean, even in the 90s, right, they were uh, in talks with Unical, uh, which is now part of Chevron, to have a giant pipeline uh, <laughs> go through Afghanistan and stuff like that and then turn sour on it. Um, so yeah, I guess you could make the case they were always business friendly to an extent, but it's in their interest to have some sort of stability uh, there as well. But I think the reappearance of ISIS, if what the scenario you, you laid out is correct, for example, and that they're going to, uh, they're being pressured by some of these other countries to perhaps uh, clamp down a little more on the opium trade, for example, um, among some of those other things you mentioned. Well, then that might explain ISIS's reemergence, given uh, how the how ISIS seems to uh, conveniently reappear um, <laughs> when uh, some Whenever of these... Whenever we need them to. Right. Well, not even just like... Um, Specifically in the case of, yeah, uh, the permanent part of the U.S. military and sort of the permanent part of the intelligence community, uh, which are really the underpinning structures of U.S. empire, um, you know, when their long-term projects get threatened that uh, continue far beyond uh, any sort of change in administration, you know, things that have just been uh, a fact of American imperial existence for decades and decades. When that stuff gets threatened, uh, ISIS tends to tends to pop up. Um, pop up. Yeah. yeah, well, I think the best example of that uh, for people who may not remember is when uh, Rodrigo Duarte in the Philippines said he was going to kick the U.S. military presence out of there. And then ISIS somehow travels all the way from the Middle East to the Philippines, skipping all of the countries in between uh, to go and take over like two cities. And then uh, Duarte is struggling to contain the response. And the the U.S. military is like, well, we'll certainly help you. (laughs) Right, right. You know, and ISIS always seems it's like they're like, you know, they're they're like COVID. They never go away. Um, You know, they're designed to never go away. (laughs) Of course not. I I, I agree. And and, but I also don't I also don't for a minute believe that ISIS is in any way, matter, shape or form uh, very well organized in Afghanistan as, as of right now. I think whatever whatever we think, I think that may be part of the problem here. Is the ISIS or now sorry ISIS K because now we have to rename them and rebrand them again so that they're not the same ISIS. ISIS K in Afghanistan um, is going to be just a cover story for a series of false flag events to try and get us to go back in. And because I'm as not, far as we know, there's no real proof beyond ISIS claiming responsibility for the attack that right. the bombing was yeah, actually. I could claim ISIS. responsibility for it, but that wouldn't be real. Yeah. Like, you know. I mean, but we also know that, you know, the, we've, been, we've known for years that the Obama administration was behind, effectively behind, you know, creating them in the first place. You know, that great general, James Mattis, let them all escape from Raqqa when he had them dead to rights and he just blow them all up and he didn't do so. Con- we have pictures of convoys of ISIS leaving Raqqa while the United States is entering the north of the city and they're all running to the south and the Russians were screaming bloody murder about it. Like, it's, you know, and... It's just it's going to continue. It, this is, by the way, only going to continue the disingenuousness, the the two faced um, stuff. It, but at the end of the day, I I don't know that that's working nearly as well as it used to, and because the geopolitical chessboard has changed more than just Afghanistan. Now, again, Gazprom will be the one building pipelines across Afghanistan, right, as opposed to Unical or Shell or anybody else. So you know. 
the Chinese are going to come in and build roads. They're going to go after the lithium deposits there, obviously. They're going to go after the precious metals deposits there. I mean, honestly, the Chinese companies have been trying to mine copper in Afghanistan for over 10 years, and they've right. not gotten anywhere, like, because it's too unstable. So stability has to come, and it's the only thing that's going to keep um, you know, Imran Khan in power in Pakistan as well. And that's even not... You know, I mean, look, the, the Pakistani uh, uh, intelligence service, I, ISI. ISI, I, I like ISI is not going to, you know, get rid of him after all this has happened. So there's a lot going on. And, you know, he's not in a very good position either. But this is a big win for him as of right now. We'll see if it uh, if it holds together when I'm really worried. But you see, the thing about it is, is that the, the way I keep reading the, 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 the board, right, is that everything has really changed since Biden went to meet with Putin and just in June. I really do believe that the world changed on that day. And I'm not and I, I'm not sure I'm completely right, but my working thesis has been that 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 was the end of Operation We're Going to Kill Ukraine. Ukraine, by the way, is, is, is I think, weeks away from uh, a political crisis. Um, the I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the representative for the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazis in uh, in Ukraine as minister within the government. He was just sacked by the Zelensky's government. He was just removed from office. So Azov Battalion no longer has a political cover, which is the main reason why Zelensky has not, as the Ukrainian president, has not abided by the Minsk agreements, has, you know, because he can't, because otherwise he'll get killed, right? So, I mean, there's, there's you know, trying to curry favor, and then there's, like, not getting killed because Ukraine is a gangster state. So I, I do think that his government is very tenuous, and there's... We're, we're, we're weeks away from something dramatic happening in Ukraine because they tried to throw a war early in the year and it failed, right? Um, and, um, and then right after that, Biden hastily puts together a summit to go meet with Putin and then basically, you know, says yes to Nord Stream 2 and let's call a ceasefire and all this other stuff and basically has washed his hands of Ukraine. And, um, and only really the Poles and you know Lithuania are still making any noise about you know what are we going to do about Ukrainian gas transit and all this and that was such a big deal for seven years. The truth of the matter is is that you know Europe was staring at seven dollars an MCF for natural gas this winter, like that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. The 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 it's already uh, uh, gas stores in Europe are already at record lows and prices had already peaked above five fifty an MCF. Because there was a fire that shut down half of the amal processing facility that feeds Europe, um, you know, up on the uh, on the uh, in the the northern sea route. So it's it's important to understand that all these things are kind of interconnected. That once once Ukraine wouldn't be spun up into a war, and from what I understand, I've I've, I've talked about this in multiple different venues, but you and I haven't talked about it. From what I understand, and it's been reported across both Ukrainian. Um, the, uh, in, in both Donbass media and, you know, dissident, uh, you know, like American dissidents living in the Donbass and Russian media, that it was the Ukrainian, um, infantry that refused to, in, uh, uh, invade the Donbass in May. And they just stood down. Basically, the, 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 the commanders, the, the lieutenant colonels and the colonels and the Ukrainian armed forces, you know, pulled their men and said, are you going to invade? And they said, no. 70% of them said no. So Davos threw a war and nobody showed up. And at that point, the whole thing collapsed. Like the whole pressure campaign against Russia on, on that front collapsed. 
And once that happened, and then Putin and Biden spoke on the phone, and I'm sure that there was a phone call that, and the Biden, and at the summit, we finally, I think the summit was all about the Russians finally proving to the political leaders in Europe and the United States, not the military leaders. The military leaders, our military leaders have known for a long time what the Russians are capable of doing in Europe. And knowing full well that the goal of the European Union, the goal of Davos, is to avoid any more wars on the the the, the continent of Europe and foment wars everywhere else, right? That I'm sure Putin explained to them what would happen if they tried to throw a war in Ukraine again after what happened. And that was and, and that and that conversation was short and it was terse. And Shoigu was there with him, the Russian defense minister. Which he doesn't normally show up to these things. But when Shoigu was there with his with the with as defense minister and the chief of staff of the Russian army was there to explain I think Konoshenkov, I think that's his name. Um Alexander Mercurius covered this beautifully, by the way. Um that explained to them, like, look, if we if you guys want to start a war, that's fine. Um I've got Mach 9 missiles on the Russian border, and I will use them to wipe out every reasonable every nato logistics point in western europe feeding into ukraine and i will destroy your ability to prosecute a war on the european mainland and that will be the end of this and then i will take odessa (laughs) and that will be the end of this and i will take the black sea and that will be the end of this and you guys can scream bloody murder all you want, but you will not be able to do anything because I will trap all your tanks in Greece. I will shut down all the railroads. I will finally shut up the freaking Lithuanians. All of this stuff would end because the Russians made it abundantly clear that any further aggression in Ukraine would be considered an act of war. That was that came directly out of the Russian foreign ministry multiple times during this period. And so I think what had to happen was the political leaders in Europe finally had to hear it and see it for themselves because they didn't believe it because they run their spreadsheets and they think it's all, they think they just play real politic all day until they got shown. No, 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 this is real. You're in trouble. You're outgunned. You're outmanned. This is not going to happen. The Russians have the hammer in, in Eastern Europe and in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's the end of it. And um, everything else since then has just been a little bit of like dog barking on the on the part of uh, the European powers. You know, the Brits sending a, a, a destroyer through Crimean waters and all of that stuff. That, that none of that stuff mattered. But once that happened, then you can see this. You can kind of see the spiral of events since then. It's all been a kind of downward spiral as all of this stuff starts to to unravel. And I think Afghanistan is part of it. So. Yeah, well, Afghanistan and Central Asia have always always been pretty uh, critical geostrategically for things that involve great power competition mm-hmm. focusing on Russia and China, right? Um, as far as sure. your take on Ukraine goes, I haven't been following Ukraine in a really long time, uh, so I can't really uh, comment on that. But a lot of what you said um, is certainly very possible. I know there's been a lot of discussion <clears throat> among people um, who I uh, have high regard for in independent media, and there seem to be like two two camps about the opinion of Russia, one that they seem to be collaborating uh, with with Davos to an extent because of, you know, cyber polygon and different things like that involving the Russian government um, and, and Spurbank, which is majority owned by 
um, the Russian state, and then also people who think that those particular factions uh, aren't necessarily um, aligned with Putin and that uh, Putin doesn't really have control over the central bank and things like that. I think you fall in uh, that category. One notable voice there, um, I think, would be like Daniel Estelin, for example, has that view as well. I would say this at this point. I think Elvira Nebelina, the uh, the head of the Russian Central Bank, has been properly chastised about what that if she wants to continue breathing, that um, she works for Russia and not for the IMF. And I'm, de- I'm dead serious when I say that. And I can see this now in the last three years, the way she's run Russian Central Bank policy. It has been in the Rus- – it's the way I would have run the Russian Central Bank if you were to ask me to run, run you know, a Keynesian Central Bank. Right. And I wouldn't run the central bank this way because I'm an Austrian. But if I if I had to act like a Keynesian, this is the I would have been doing what Nabilene has been doing. OK, so she's been supporting Putin at a which has not always been the case, but she's she's still drawn oxygen, for lack of a better term, because she got told what needed to be done. She was I, I, I could go over I could spend twenty minutes explaining my, my, my reasoning for this, but just understand that I, <laughs> yeah, I think well. it would take me twenty minutes to explain it all, to be honest with you. No, I'd have to go I'm back sure. to like twenty seventeen. And I don't really want to go back to the rate rise in March of twenty seventeen. So um <laughs> that's fine. I, I just don't. I, but you can look it up. There's a there's a moment when she started to raise rates. Go look it up. That's the day she she met with Putin the day before. And she wasn't going to raise rates. And then Putin walked into her office and the next day she raised rates half a point. Like, oh, I think somebody was told. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, sometimes those uh, yeah. coincidences, if you want to call them that, are pretty telling. Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, to, to get back, on, I guess, on topic a little bit, since we're uh, focusing mostly on Afghanistan here. Um, one thing that I, I really liked in your piece uh, was sort of how you challenged how most U.S. media and pundits tend to quantify the cost of war in Afghanistan purely in terms mm. of U.S. money spent and U.S. lives lost. And then, you know, a, a lot of others in alternative or independent media you know, uh, go farther. They highlight the significant loss of life of Afghan civilians, infrastructure, and also the, the cost of stability, the lack of stability um, in economic terms. Uh, but I really liked a comment that you made in one of um, uh, your pieces about how from the U.S. side in the war of Afghanistan, this also came with a significant loss or coincided uh, with a significant loss of civil liberties at home. And I think a lot of people forget that. Um that, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan the first time around was, you know, Afghanistan was part and parcel of this major uh, event that changed so much in the United States and also internationally um, that, you know, involved this massive loss of civil, civil liberties, and, and, you know, domestically within the United States. And coincidentally, we are now uh, in the second major round of, of that, a 9-11 style mm-hmm. redux taking place with the COVID situation. Uh, it almost yep. seems like we are living in a 2001 redux, actually, um, but yes, with much are. higher stakes with now that, you know, Afghanistan um, coming back to the forefront. So do you have any thoughts on this 2001-2021 parallel we are currently living? Sure. I, I started calling it COVID-9-11 about two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, probably fair. Let's cram it all together. It's like it's not COVID nineteen eighty four. It's COVID nine eleven. Um, and yes, and so yeah, just to to put a finer point on what you what you said, what, what I what I wrote about in the article, which is that you know did, before Afghanistan was there a Department of Homeland Security, the Patriot Act, Military Commissions Act, Global War on Terror. It's not just the two trillion two point two trillion dollars you see. It's the, all of the opportunity costs 
uh, aside from, along with all of the other things that we built and all of the other attendant things that we didn't do with that, not just with that money, but with all the other money that we spent to domestically quell uh, internal dissent and, and all the rest of it. That's all money that was diverted away from the productive economy, from your life, my life, and our children's lives. That's kids not getting braces. That's women having abortions because they can't afford to keep their children. That's roads. That's potholes that aren't filled. That's car. That's car repairs you have to make because you're because there are potholes in the roads and that break your struts. This is the light. These are the real world events that. When we talk about all this stuff at the big level, is it important that we protect U.S. interests in Afghanistan? Well, is it worth the potholes in your in your city right out in front of your house? Is it worth your children having to be indoctrinated in critical race theory or any of this other stuff, which is all downstream of what happens when you give the government this amount of power in the first place? The war in Afghanistan didn't cost $2.2 trillion. It cost $40 trillion in lost production and lost everything. I mean, Bob Higgs and Tom Woods a, a long time ago actually quantified, actually sat down and did a quantification of how much money it costs us to prosecute World War II and the post-World War II fascist state that was built after World War II. And the number is this astronomical. This is why we don't have flying cars and we don't have all the really cool stuff that the Jetsons promised us, because it all went to funnel... You know, the, 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 the ridiculous dreams of petty tyrants in Washington and the you know, Westminster and Davos and all the rest of them. I'm, I'm just so freaking sick of it. I mean, it, it actually, I, I, I've gotten to the point where in the, so much of my writing, I don't talk about this stuff anymore because I've got to be the kind of staid political analyst on this, but no idea when I really stop to just do the human toll here. It's, it's, it's so big. You can't actually wrap your brain around it. And when you do, when you do try, it just breaks your heart to the point where you can't function. And I, I think we need to realize that that's what's happening with COVID. Like that's where we yeah. are. And if we don't, if we don't really take that into our hearts at this point, well, they're just going to run the table on us. And we're going to be standing in a line and you know, like Oliver Twist asking for a gruel. Can I have another? No, Prince mm, Citizen. Yeah. Two, one bowl of oatmeal is allowed. You're allowed today. That's it. And, uh, you know, get back in line and, you know, half a roll of toilet paper for you. Sorry. We have a planet to save from climate change. What are you, a heathen? What are you, a bad person? That's where we are. Like, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm so sick. Of, I, I, I'm sorry, but I hate to like, you know, filibuster here, but I just, it just no, it's not me. filibustering at all. I mean, I did, I did ask you, <laughs> I did ask you a question. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. But, um, uh, similar, uh, uh, coming off of what you just said, I think it, it is interesting, for example, that like an in independent media, for example, alternative media, a lot of the voices that you see saying, oh, well, there's nothing to see here with COVID. Uh, for example, seem to be the same voices that for years, despite, you know, what they may have said accurately about other situations, refuse to engage uh, with anything other than the official narratives of September 11th, 2001. Um, and I think that is pretty, um, that's pretty telling. And, you know, people might just need to use as a, as a sieve, as a sifter, basically, to separate, um, you know, uh, wheat from the chaff with people who are who are actually willing uh, to to challenge 
um, the system or whatever you want to call it, the elite. Or, 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 or more appropriately, and I've done, and I mean, I've made no bones about how I, I, I have no patience for people like Caitlin Johnstone who won't get past her own ideology and will happily throw everything, uh, throw all of her analysis under the bus in order to make the world, you know, safe for leftism. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, fine. Like you're you're okay with being you're okay with being humanitarian until the moment comes where it's somebody you don't like. Oh, then they can be grounded to a pace because they don't matter. Oh, okay. I see. Got it. Understand where we are now. Good. Thank you. No, I'm dead serious. Like I I've I I have I'm done I'm done being even nice about it. Like I I have I'm done. I, I name names now. The people who uh, whose whose analysis are is is myopic and doesn't get I don't get it. I do it in the financial space. I do it in the political space. I don't care. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to save lives and I'm here to to inform people and give them the best information that I can. You do a different job than me. You and I have different different goals. And I and I fully appreciate what you do. Don't don't do do not take that in any way to be a rebuke because it's not. I have <laughs> no, tremendous respect for the, I have tremendous respect for the way you do what you do. I can't do what you do. Right. I, I can't. It's not that's not the way my brain is wired. It's not the way I, I, I look at the world. My job is to kind of synthesize all this stuff into, you know, in, in, into in, into this is where they're going next kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and, and look at it differently. And you do unbelievable levels of, of, uh, of digging that I have nothing but the greatest respect for. And I mean that sincerely. Well, um, I think we're all looking at different pieces of the puzzle, people like you and me, exactly. right? So, you know, sure. it's just, we're all yeah, doing that's, our that's the, part. We can't, not right. one person can't do all of it. You know what I mean? So we're like building no, off of and complimenting each other's work. That's how I tend to look at it. That's, I think that's, a, I think that's the, the most healthy way to look at it. And, um, you know, I see stuff in the financial markets and the way the financial players are the, the, the big stuff. I, what I see there, I see a very, very interesting split in, in Davos. I really do. And I've been looking, I've been watching the cracks in Davos for six months now. And I think they're very real. Um, and I think they center around the Federal Reserve. <laughs> and mm. I know that that like really freaks people out when they say that, that uh, when I say that, but, and I am not the first, I'd be the last person to ever defend the federal reserve about anything, but it just makes perfect sense. When you look at the way the fed is being asked to be the central bank of the world to provide liquidity for all of these broke economies and these, these people who are literally undermining the American way of life. And they're asking the fed to, to monetize it all. And the fed's going, um, you know, no, I don't think so. And I think that there's a, a moment. I think there's. It's very very subtle the way the Fed has played it, but I think it's very real um, that right now, and this my and this is and I've written extensively about this right now, and I've done a whole series of podcasts on why June 16th was so important. Um, at the, right now, the best ally we may have temporarily in this fight against what's happening is the Federal Reserve, because if the Fed does what I continue, continues to do what I, what they have been doing, what I continue to expect them to do, which is defend the dollar while the U.S. political system is, is being torn to pieces by vultures, right? And Biden being replaced is one of them. We can shift into that con, that part of the conversation if you want. Um, but the Fed defending the dollar in this moment in time is a very significant thing because that is not what Europe wants at all. Well, we'll see how long that, that lasts because I recently did a, a video interview um, with Catherine Austin Fitz, who um, 
uh, of, of Solari report that put out the uh, going direct reset about the influence of BlackRock over recent Federal Reserve policy. And of course, BlackRock, uh, Larry Fink, right, is at the very tippy top oh, yeah. of the of the Davos crowd. Oh, he's very much a Davosian, as as uh, as Alexander Perkhurst would put it. Um, <laughs> yes, very much yeah, a Davos. Yeah, guy. so you know, um, they're going to try and, and milk that influence uh, when they see. Uh, when they see fit. Uh, so we'll see, you know, how long, uh, you know, Jerome Powell decides to, to, you know, defend the dollar. He doesn't seem exactly like a guy who will, uh, uh, courageously defend it and go down with the ship or whatever, you know. <laughs> well, I think what he's doing, I think what he's doing right now is he's auditioning for uh, a re a reappointment. Remember, he's up for reappointment in February. Oh, and right. Okay. So th- this is very important right now. Powell's in a very difficult position right now. Okay, so look, the first rule of Fed watching is never to to talk about the first rule of Fed watching is never respond to what they say. Always watch what they do. Because they say a whole bunch of things. And as far as I'm concerned, I think Powell's playing his part, acting like the bumbling idiot, like everybody else in Biden's administration. I think he's playing a part. I think Jerome Powell is a very smart guy, and I know people who know Jerome Powell. They are patrons of mine, and I'm like, and they're like, yeah, that's not this guy. <laughs> He's from a private equity background. Yes, he may be from a, he may have deep, he may have ties to BlackRock and everything else. But the 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 basic thing here is that do you really believe that the Federal Reserve, if it works for anybody, do you really think it works for anybody other than itself or the Wall Street money center banks? Do you really think it works for anybody else than that? Because I don't. Right. Well, you, you know, the, the theory that it, it follows the exact tune of Davos, right, and uh, assumes that Larry Fink, uh, you know, rules everything BlackRock does with an iron fist. I'm not exactly familiar with the uh, workings of, of, of BlackRock itself, but uh, since it's quite large and controls so much and has so many different divisions, it's very possible that it's factional as well. Sure. No, I, and all I'm, all I'm saying here is that I, I I just don't see Jamie Dimon. Like, I've been watching Jamie Dimon for 15 years now. I don't see Jamie Dimon willingly give a handing over the keys to J.P. Morgan to a bunch of feckless European oligarchs who want to do away with the U.S. money center banks and throw them all to Antifa and to the wolves. I just don't see that happening. But that's the goal. The goal is to cut the money center banks, the, 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 the primary dealer banks, out of the money transmission system. Now, I'm not saying that the Fed doesn't want to do this as well, but the Fed will be the last central bank that does this, not the first. Okay, uh. this, is where, this is where a lot of commentators have gotten it wrong. The Fed, if the Fed were the first one to jump on a, digital, a central bank digital currency, it would be, that would be telling. They will be the last ones to do it. Why? Because we're already the world's reserve currency. Why would we do that? Right. Okay. Now, now that system is end. That system is ending, but it's going to take another fifteen years for it to end. The other central banks get squeezed first. Watch the. Ca- I, I've been, I've been, I've been harping on this point with my patrons and with my subscribers for weeks now. Look at the relative capital flows. You don't even have to like subscribe to Martin Armstrong to and look at and have him, you know, give you a deeper look at it. Very simple. Just watch the Dow, the Eurostox fifty, the Nikkei. And the dollar index and, you know, and the U.S. and the U.S. yield, the short end of the U.S. yield curve. And you'll see a very, very clear picture of what's happening. Money is moving into safe haven assets. okay, Mm -hmm. at a furious pace. And it's leaving Europe. The you know, look, the the Dow is breaking to new highs as you and I do this on what the uh, August 28th. Mm hmm. 
what the, what's the day? 28th? 28th. August 28th. The Dow, the, the, the Dow closed this week at an all-time high, or at least making a new all-time high this week. And yet the Eurostoxx 50 didn't, still struggling from a, a breakdown a couple of weeks ago. The Nikkei peaked six months ago. The Chi- Chinese large cap stocks are down 25% off their peak. Okay. And the short end of the U.S. yield curve is below the reverse repo rate, but still above zero. So the Fed didn't have, so Powell didn't have to come out of Jackson Hole yesterday and scream and say, oh my God, we have to taper tomorrow. Why? Because there's no need to taper tomorrow. U.S. money, U.S. money market rates aren't at the zero bound. He has three and a half basis points with which to play yet. When that, when, when the one month T-bill reaches zero percent again, expect Powell to raise the reverse repo rate to, to 10 basis points. You know what that will do to the euro? Well, the last time he did that, it took the euro from a dollar twenty-two to a dollar nineteen in two days. The next time he does it, it'll break to a dollar seventeen. It'll go to a dollar fifteen on its way to parity, because it will break what's left of the European banking system. That's what Davos is scared to death of right now, because if the European, but they want a they want a sovereign debt crisis in Europe so that they can consolidate power under the ECB, but they don't want it. They want it on their terms not on the Fed's terms. And what they want is, is while that's happening, for capital to, to stay in Europe while they get the whole pa- vaccine passport thing done, while they get while they still have COVID to keep the Europeans locked in, and to get through the uh, European election cycle with the Germans going into the polls next month, the French in the spring. I think the Italians go to the, to the polls in 2022 as well. You've got, so you've got other, you've got Doesn't the, the UK have one next, upcoming next as well. I think it's, uh, no, I think that, well, they, they might actually. So yeah, cause they had the special election. Well, they had the, the special election. Um, I don't know if the term is actually technically over. I'm not sure. I don't remember, but there's a number of elections coming up mm-hmm. that all need to be dealt with. And the German elections being the big ones and the French elections in the spring being, being also in, incredibly important. And then you have got Italian elections at some point as well, where, you know, Mario Draghi may get thrown out of, uh, well, hopefully we get thrown out of office. So, um, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot going on here. And, you know, I can tell you that they don't want to have to deal with a sovereign debt crisis in Europe in 2022, but I can tell you they're staring at it. And so watch the Fed carefully. I mean, all of, that's all I have to say is like, it doesn't seem like much, but another five basis points on the reverse repo, on, on paying, you know, 10 basis points in reverse repos and allowing a hundred billion dollars from anyone, you know, allowing them to, as opposed to 80 billion, to, you know, a bank going in and, and, and asking for 80 billion dollars to get like a hundred billion or 120 billion. Cause that's what, um, Powell's going to do next. He's already signaled he's going to do this next. So before he raised the rate the first time, he raised the limit. From fifty billion dollars to eighty billion dollars. That's what one bank can go to the reverse repo window for, right? And he did that first to create a little, to create more cushion. Then when he that ran out of, when he ran out of space there, and the money market rates were pegged at the zero bound, then he finally raised the reverse repo rate in order to pay them on their on their dollar holdings. Okay, well now great. Now what? Now he's pulling liquidity out of the system. Now. When that same, when those same conditions happen again, he's already talked about like last couple of weeks ago. He said we might have to raise the the limit on the reverse repo window to you know 100 billion or 120 billion, whatever. He didn't say a number, but just pick a number. That's the signal that the next time we get ugly, when things get ugly in the in the money markets, he's going to do the same thing again. He's going to raise the the RRP rate. When that does, when he does that, he's going to drain overseas capital markets of trillions of dollars of dollar liquidity, just like he did the last time. Okay, because that's going to be the thing... only place anybody can get to. 
The only thing I think I would interject in here, just because I've written about it extensively, is this plan for the, you know, what Cyber Polygon simulates, essentially this uh, cyber attack reset of uh, the banking system that ushers in the Mm. uh, central bank digital currencies. Because a lot of the stuff that I wrote about on that involves both the Fed um, and the ECB and the Bank of England and, and, you know, all of these these organizations. So I think that's another factor to maybe uh, potentially... Uh, thinking, but we don't know the timing, right? So it's it's hard to know. But to me, it looks like it could it may not be that far off. It may not be, and I, I know that there's a lot of people. I, I know you're one of them, and there are other people who've who've talked to me about this stuff as well. And I and I look at it, and I say, you know, um, yeah, that's also part of what I think was that um, um, Putin told Schwab, you better not do that. Like, do you really think that like? Vladimir Putin is there's one word that describes Putin's geopolitical um, ethos stability. He believes in change. Change is inevitable, but he doesn't believe that change should be directed by outside forces. Change should happen organically from within the, the, the things happening within societies. So if you watch Putin's strategies, if you watch his policies, it's always to try and maintain as much of the current status quo as possible and then allow events to come to him. So do you really think, Mr. I want 60, I want stable oil prices? No, Davos, we're not going to, we're not going to send the price to 125 because you know they offered him that. And he said no. And then when we're not going to take it back down to 30 because they just want, they just want volatility in the oil markets, Whitney. It's not tough. <laughs> if oil is, is volatile, then oil is uninvestable. And if oil is uninvestable, it furthers the Green New Deal. It furthers the whole climate mm-hmm. change. Stuff. Well, part okay. of the, the so, whole reset, that was actually my last podcast, was about how the uh, yeah. the whole financial reset, you know, and, and the new Green Deal, it's all the same thing, essentially. And it's really it the central bankers behind, <laughs> behind it. Essentially. Oh, I know. I agree. And I'm not saying that I just don't know that the Fed is actually down with this commentary. I just don't think they're down with the commentary. Yeah, I, well, we, I, the, the I, thing is, we don't and, really know. Well, at least from my perspective, you know, I don't really know who wh- what's what in that sense. There's just different uh, possible, like you were talking about earlier, uh, like like probability right. fields, possibilities Absolutely. that we all have to I look agree. at. And as things develop and move along, it becomes, you know, clear the pro- what the probabilities are. And obviously they're subject, subject to change and all of that. So I'm very happy to hear a very uh, <laughs> a, a, different a different perspective uh, from what sure. I've been sort of uh, looking at, which is, you know, uh, refreshing and good for me because it's good to incorporate that stuff. It's also a lot rosier uh, <laughs> in, in a sense to think <laughs> that there is a challenge to the ECB in a, in a sense instead of all the central banks, you know, being in, in lockstep together uh, because the more factional they are, the, um, you know, the, the likelier, uh, the more likely it is that their plans uh, hit a snag, right? Because ultimately infighting between them is uh, a boon for people like us. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. And I think that that's I mean, at a minimum, the, the Chinese and the Russians have made it abundantly clear to Davos that they are not down with climate change. Like, look, again, don't listen to what they say. Look at what they're doing. Like Putin the other day said, I think he came out the other day and said, oh, we're going to get we're going to reach our carbon limit. We're going to reach our, our, our carbon targets by planting more trees. But we're not going to stop burning oil. <laughs> he just came out and said that the other day. He's like, I'm not going to. Yeah, we'll plant more trees. We're, we're Russia. We can plant lots of trees. Like, yeah. I, I was I was like, 
that's like the biggest. I, I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to keep it clean here, but that's like the biggest two fingers up to the to, to Davos I've I've heard since his speech at Davos. That, that's that's actually kind of funny because some of the climate change well that are now climate change billionaires like Bill Gates, right? Who you know right. earlier this year after doing the the COVID media spree last year, you know, was doing the climate change one. Earlier this right. year, he poo-poos the idea of planting more trees as a solution to climate change, even though if you believe the official narrative about climate change, that would make the most sense in theory um, if you're trying to reduce the amount of carbon. So it's very telling that that is not a solution they want to pursue, but I guess it's a quite clever of, of, of Putin to say that because it, it fits with the official narrative but makes them very mad. Right. <laughs> You know. yeah, it makes them very mad. She did the same thing at his speech at Davos earlier in the year. I mean, they both talked at Davos. I mean, when she said, yeah, we're going to reach our climate targets by 2050 or 2060 or whatever it was. And Davos was pushing 2030 on everybody. And he was just like, yeah, we're, we're going to do 2050 or 2060. You know, we'll get there. Like, that was a big slap. In, that was a, the biggest slap in the face to Kashua. Like, that was a, that was that was she looking at him going, what? Do you think I'm? Do you think I'm Maybe. going to upend my entire society because you have a theory? Um, I'm sorry, but you're really not that powerful, Mr. Schwab. No. And then Putin literally, while well, you know, literally told him to his face the Fourth Industrial Revolution, all of these ideas that that Schwab has written and talked about extensively. To Schwab's face, told him that was all dumb, in the nicest possible way. But it was like you're really dumb. Like it was, it was a, it was masterful. Well, I, I had, he's a dangerous dumb man. Let's just uh, what's that? Uh, the, Klaus Schwab being a he's a, very dangerous. a dangerous dumb man. He is, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. But you know, but he's not dangerous because he doesn't control Mach nine missiles, and like, he does control the U.S. military. <laughs> Fair he does control the U.S. military right now, and that's the that's the scarier part. And um, and that's what bothers me is that the whole goal of getting rid of Trump was to get control of the U.S. military and then just start throwing it around. You know, as the, you know, like the drunk in the bar. That's the thing that worries me more than anything else. Or uh, and I think th- it's been argued, too, that, that, that it was done to weaken it as well. I think that's an argument that Catherine uh, Austin Fitz has made, um, that it was uh, because, it, you know, it, it makes it easier to create a uh, multipolar world as the way, you know, the Davos crowd would want if the U.S. Uh, military's uh, superpower status is drastically and, and rapidly um reduced well what i would I, what i would um what i would take issue with that is the concept that davos wants a um uh, a multipolar world they don't they want a new unipolar world centered around them well i guess i guess multipolar isn't the term she would use either i guess more right. of the u.s not really being a superpower anymore sort of taking them out of the equation sure so you can have those things like as tom as tom sopper would say consecutively and concurrently you can you can both use the u.s military in terrible ways and weaken it from within and without by launching it into conflicts it can't win but do but in the process sowing as much chaos as possible that's actually the that's actually the the way to do both of those things what i just said and what she said and she's i think she's right about that i'm not i'm not in any way arguing against that point i think both of those things can be true they're not mutually exclusive well she also argued i think that the vaccine mandate was also aimed at that by getting uh, a significant amount of people to resign um, which Absolutely. appears to be happening, um, from what I understand. Absolutely. So same thing. It's the same thing with defund the police. The defund the police was meant to get rid of you know every cop with an ethos like my dad, like every real cop. Get rid of all the old old timers. Get them to retire early. 
Um, you know, if not, get them to retire before their pensions kick in with, with cause or whatever. I mean, it was all done in order to leave the, the, the local police full of nothing but, you know, you know, roid freak guys, uh, back from Afghanistan with post, post, uh, uh, with PTSD mm-hmm. roaming the streets and not caring. I mean, I, I honestly, and, you know, and, and that's where we are. And, um, and I, 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 that's, that's a very scary thing. And I've talked to a lot of law enforcement and ex-law enforcement about what's happening. And they're all really worried about this. And every one of them that I've talked to is organizing fire teams in their local community here down here in Florida. So, you, you know, take, <laughs> it's like, take that to the, to, you know, and, and do with it what you will. So, um, like that's where they are. And I know that a lot of vets are now very angry at what happened in Afghanistan. So I know we've been talking for a while. I know you wanted to get to the other, my other theory about where we go post Biden. So, um, yeah, well, I have, I have two more questions. Uh, so one, I'll ask one that's more about Afghanistan and then, uh, my, my last one that's about, uh, your, uh, what I thought was a very interesting theory. Um, so one of the reasons that you uh, have cited uh, for the rapid collapse of the American-built uh, occupation structure in Afghanistan was that, quote, humans are loyal to their tribes. Um, I found this to be really salient, not just for what we already talked about and, and, and what that uh, means about the fact that the people of Afghanistan are much more comfortable with a traditional tribal structure than a foreign structure imposed upon them uh, by the American political establishment, but also because that same tribalism, um, albeit in a, in a very different form, is becoming a much more obvious, like publicly visible, I guess you could say, uh, driving force domestically in the U.S. and arguably in other Western countries. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on that. I do believe that that's happening. Um um, uh, it's, you know, when things get chaotic, I'm going to quote Amos, the, the great philosopher Amos Burton from the, from the Expanse novels. I just literally just read this passage in, in the book, in book five, like this afternoon. Uh, he said, you know, when, when things get ugly, I, I actually, I have, unfortunately I have to paraphrase it because Amos has a way with words. He said, you know, when things get really bad and when civilization, um, breaks down, you know, um, so, so does civility and the two things go hand in hand and something like that. And so when your tribe, when things like this happen, your tribes get smaller and you're, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, right now he was like, to turn to the girl, the woman next to him said, it looks like you and me are a tribe of two. Um, but that's what has to happen. You have to kind of look at around to look at the people around you and decide which ones are the people you can trust. Those people are going to be your family. They're going to be the people that you've known your entire life or the people that you've been, you know, to hell and back again with. And, um, those are the people that you have to, you know, bring, you know, seriously into your fold and make and bring them and draw them closer to you and rely because you're going to have to rely on each other to get out of any of the, of what's, what's coming next. And, you know, this is the thing that we libertarians get whacked on about all the time that we're all these, you know, I'm an independent man. Yeah. But I'm an independent man that realizes that I need a whole lot of people around me that have skills I don't have. As you and I talked about earlier, you do what you do in this business. I do what I do in this business. We complement each other because we can't possibly all do it together. We can't all possibly do everything because if we all had to do everything together, we would live – if we all had to do everything independent of each other, we would live at a subsistence level. Civilization grows out of the division of labor and it grows out of the, the understanding and the necessity to have other people provide you with the things that you're not necessarily either good at or have the time for. And – you know, it's the law of comparative advantage when you talk about it in economic terms. So tribes are a natural and small tribes are a natural consequence from of chaos. And so the people of Afghanistan saw the opportunity 
to stay loyal to their tribes and get stability. Why wouldn't they take that? Seems obvious to me. And it's going to and that same choice is going to be put is being put in front of a lot of Americans right now. And they're waking up to the idea of this. And I think it's a good thing. And it's going to be hard for a lot of people to have to go through that psychological shift. And in, in, I've been there for years, mm-hmm. year, if not decades now. But it's, you know, so I'm happy to try and help people get through that. Um, that's part of what I, why I do. It's what animates why I do what I do. I could easily do anything else for a living that I do, I do this. Because um, I think this has the most purpose and the most, it brings the most meaning to my life. So, um, you know, that's where we have to, that's where we have to be. And that's how we're going to have to help people get, you know, emotionally to that state. And, you know, this is the best we can do. And, and it means, you know, I hate to say it, getting hard and harder than we've been. It's been, it was, you know, life's been easy. And, you know. Yeah, well, there's definitely a reckoning coming, and I've seen it coming for a long time. Like, I'm a, mm-hmm. <laughs> I turned mm-hmm. uh, 32 this year. Uh, but back when I was in, in college, I was really insistent on uh, learning skills um, that I knew would be useful because I could see even then, obviously, uh, pretty much none of my peers at the time. I really shared this opinion, but it was really obvious to me then that life was very, um, the way of life in the U.S., um, at least where I was living, was very dependent on supermarkets, supply chains, um, all sorts of things. No one knew, especially in my generation, had any idea how to pr- produce really any of the things that they were consuming. And that didn't seem yep. like a good, um, you know, uh, a long term, you know, safe <laughs> system uh, to me sure. and sort of having those um viewpoints can be very socially isolating <laughs> among among oh, the yeah. millennial generation uh probably other generations as well um but it's definitely even, even, you know it, even in mine yeah right but it's definitely you know there's i think you know the united states and other countries that have been set up that way have been sort of long overdue in a sense for some sort of reckoning with those um the system that affords those comforts and how it really is not created in a sustainable way. And, you know, obviously, you know, the the climate change and all of that stuff has tried to develop sort of a monopoly over the use of the word sustainable, but it does have, you know, a, um, right. different meanings, <laughs> right, outside of oh, that uh, particular um, agenda. And, you know... Um, People really need to be able to, uh, you know, self-sustain themselves and build more resilient structures and one that isn't dependent on uh, so much graft and corruption and all of this stuff. So, you know, it was bound to happen at some point. And I think it's becoming more and more clear um, to people in the U.S. and, and elsewhere that that point is really not that far away Um and that people are, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of what seems impossible or what, you know, maybe 20 years ago seemed totally impossible, this sort of uh, chaos, uh, you know, tribalism, whatever that's going on in some of these other countries, uh, Afghanistan or whatever, you know, that type of chaos could never happen in the U.S. and all of that stuff. I think um, that illusion is quickly crumbling away uh, for better or for worse. I, I think it's I think it's going to be both better and worse. Right. It's it, well, you know, worse we have before to go it gets through. better, maybe. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, you're 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 absolutely right, and it's 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 been it's been costly. There's no doubt about it. It's been costly to to to, to have this to have this worldview. Um, but you know, all I can all I can do is is like everything else. And for me, my um my audience skews older, so the amount of of um 
you know, excuse my age and, you know, somewhat older. And I mean, yeah, there's, there's younger people in my, in, in my, my, my patrons, certainly, but it skews pretty old. And what I can hear generally from them is a real fear, um, because they don't have, you know, the same, they don't have the kind of support structure that they, they know they, they need. And, uh, and I'm not just talking about like money. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. And, well, money's uh, only I, part I, of know. it because there's a point where money yeah, becomes absolutely. useless and you can't eat money. Uh, even if you right. have precious metals or crypto or whatever, you know, there's, <laughs> it, it's to prepare for the support structures that we're really going to depend on. This is, this is why I have, this is why I store some of my meat on the hoof and on the, and on the, the waddle or whatever they, the web foot of the <laughs> duck. Um, it's why I, you know, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's why you, it's why you have these things. I mean, it's, it's just, that's the, what has to happen and, and, uh, and know that that's part of what you do. And, and, uh, I'm not saying that everybody can live like that because you can't, but you need to just know, you know, the people around you and be willing to make sure that they get, some business, you throw them some business their way so that, you know, it's like everything else. It's building those networks now um, is really important. It's, it's, totally. it's more important than it's ever been. I absolutely agree. So one more question then uh, about what we've teased a little bit over the course of this uh, conversation. So um, we, we, we mentioned earlier, much earlier on, uh, that we've witnessed recently uh, both the American political establishment and the media in lockstep, rare for them, uh, at least in terms of both sides, right, um, doing a 180 uh, on Biden that seems to me pretty, uh, as at least as time has gone on, kind of orchestrated. So you, you, you put forth some interesting opinions and possibilities about what could come after what seems uh, to become an increasingly likely premature exit um, of Biden from office. So I know a lot of people um, have suspected this for some time. And, you know, like we said earlier, thought Kamala would just be um, installed and that would be the end of that, um, you know, since that's the only way to really get her into office uh, or into that particular office. And she's, you know, hopelessly unelectable. Um, but you don't right. exactly see it that way anymore, as we sort of mentioned earlier. Um, so do you see this 180 on Biden as, uh, you know, as being as pre-planned as the current a situation unfolding in Kabul and Afghanistan more broadly? And what do you think we are likely to see in the increasingly um, uh, probable event of Biden's early exit from office? Okay. So let's start with the, the basics. Um, I don't think when they started the project to get rid of Trump in March of 2020, that Joe Biden was going to uh, collapse as quickly as he has. It was obvious to me it was obvious to people who were medical professionals that I knew. It was obvious to people who were medically medical professional adjacent, right? And who've had, you know, like if you've had an elder, you know, uh, someone in in his in his age cohort, and you've I've watched I've watched my mom go through what he went through, like, and I saw the early stages of this. And I'm like, he reminds me of my mom. So does Hillary. You know, like the, the, he's sundowning, and he's not going to he's not going to last very long. So they pitched their wagon to a guy that they, I think they expected to get two years out of him, get him to the midterms, maybe a little longer past the midterms. Uh, Kamala Harris was a diversity hire that I think they were hoping that they could get her trained into the position by then. He's been in office eight months. He's falling he's asleep now at <laughs> very highly publicized yeah, he's, yeah, I mean, he, he's literally yeah. not functional, right? So we're at that stage. So Afghanistan being the mess that it is, 
the worst mess that it could possibly have been, worse than they planned for. They now have a convenient excuse because Americans are very angry with him. His approval rating officially will be down to 35% by next week. It was always 35%, but officially they will finally come out with some polls that say it's 35%, right? We'll get to there. Harris has not been given any opportunity so far to prove her mettle. They gave her the border. She bungled that. They, then I watched this week after Ida sweeps through her, um, Hurricane Ida sweeps through New Orleans mm-hmm. that she may be sent down there to deal, to coordinate down there. If she isn't, that'll also be telling because what, where is she? She's in first Singapore. Then yeah, she gets Vietnam. what the, the, mm-hmm. the, then she gets the, not the Hanoi, the Havana syndrome thing. That's a, that's a, that's that's a pre-plan that, oh, she's got health issues. She's going to have to step down. Um, and then she went to Hanoi and thought that she was you know kneeling in front of a shrine to John McCain when it was a shrine memorializing the capture of John McCain. Like that's how out of touch she is and how incompetent, how unprepared and how unqualified for the job she is. Didn't, didn't it also in Vietnam, she got just like uh, immediately outdone by like the Chinese foreign minister or something right after she met with them, she like offered them some deal. I think it was about vaccines or something. I can't remember. And then the Chinese Chinese came in and just like made a deal that was infinitely better <laughs> and made her look like a chump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so she's, I think there, the, she might've already been, you know, uh, interviewed for the job over in Singapore, you know, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, 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 the hotel, uh, meeting, you know, up on the 30th floor of some, you know, some Singaporean hotel. And I think she's been deemed inappropriate. I also don't think that she's on team Obama or Clinton or anybody else. She's on team Harris. She well, already sure. tried to cur- She's already tried to curry favor with the, with the, uh, with, with the cabinet in order to try and invoke the 25th amendment against Biden. She's already tried to make, make the end run around the infrastructure around her. And now there's two other things to think about with her. When they pulled this with Obama in 2008, and Obama had been groomed for what 10 years previous to taking office, Obama had around him an entire staff of people who knew who were veterans. Brzezinski was still alive. All of these people were, you know, this Kissinger was even still like mostly functional. Like all of these, there was still, a, uh, you know, Pelosi was a lot younger. The Senate and House leadership were younger. All the, that whole generation of politicians were still, you know, for all intents and purposes, still in their prime. Mm-hmm. So Obama could get all this stuff done and learn the job and, you know, stay out of the, or just for the most part, stay out of the way and then be given credit when he needed to be. And he could be brought along and brought into the job slowly. She's not, she doesn't have that support structure around her. Everybody around her is 84 years old and, or they're, or they're useless. Well, I would also argue too, that in, in the Obama era, it was also a lot about optics, you know, Obama being the smooth, fresh face for this older political class. Right. But Kamala can't even do that. I mean, you know, she has a lot of gaffes, even though, you know, not the same kind of gaffes that Biden necessarily has, but she has the, the kind of gaffes where she starts like having that cackle, the Kamala laugh or whatever people have called it at really inappropriate times. Um, her office is known to be just like a huge uh, total mess and she can't really blame it on 
being a geriatric or anything like that. It just appears to be either incompetence or or something else. It's definitely she definitely can't be a, a new Obama. Um, and I think they care a lot about optics now. Um, well, they have to because they've mm-hmm. ruined everything else. Because right? <laughs> with the first thing, the first thing, the first stage, the first stage of this was to create. This is something I didn't really make it into the article, but since I wrote the article on Tuesday, I've had a long, long time to think about this. The first stage of this operation was to create a power vacuum at the top of the United States government. Davos loves weak governments. Germany, Spain, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Austria, you name it. They love weak coalition governments. We can't really get a weak coalition government in the United States, but what you can do is you can neutralize the most powerful office in the world by putting a fungus in it who's just waiting for his ice cream, right? So, and by the way, (laughs) you're opening, and by the way, your opening (laughs) monologue was hilarious. I was having to not laugh openly into the microphone i kept reaching for the mute button i was i was i was it was hilarious by the way so well well it's true though um absolutely every word of it was true that's why it was so damn funny so um uh, so the first phase of it is to create a vacuum the second phase then is to create a strong presence after that you create chaos by by interjecting chaos into negative space and then you try and fill that negative space with something positive Right. That will be the next phase of the operation. So that has to be somebody who is absolutely on Team Davos and knows their way around Washington and is still young enough to be credible and that we don't have the same problem, but is still of that generation of true believer in this whole post-World War II, you know, uh, push towards globalism, right? And global government. It has to be a true believer. There are really two people that fit that bill within the current crop of the Democratic Party. John Kerry and Janet Yellen. And after I wrote the article, I which I was laser focused on my Yellen theory, someone mentioned John Kerry and I'm like, ooh, yeah, John Kerry's a good choice too. So John Kerry sits in the background as the climate czar, but really he's the Secretary of State. And he's been the Secretary of State all he's been the real Secretary of State all through the Trump administration. Because everywhere Pompeo went, Kerry went right behind him to, you know, give the Davos, you know, version of reality. Oh, by the way, ignore this guy. He'll be out of office in four years. This is what our plans are when I when I retake office. Don't worry about it. So John Kerry is a very viable option here. But I don't know that his he's but he's too partisan in my mind. You need somebody completely in their minds, nonpartisan. And who is more nonpartisan than an independent central banker like Janet Yellen? Well, she's also a fresh face, right? John Kerry's not. Yeah. He was a presidential yeah. candidate in 2004. He already served as Secretary of State, right, in the Obama administration. So he has baggage. Right. I mean, he's Secretary of State. He's been Senate Majority Leader. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah, he's got, you know, so he's just going to be seen that way. But but Yellen to me, and Yellen's a woman, so they get to tick off the box of the first female president, blah, 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 blah. To me, it just seems like, it just seems perfect. And as I said, in the article, if you think that's crazy, um, excuse me, who's the prime minister of Italy, Mario Draghi? Because <laughs> yeah. he's the only one acceptable to the to all, every all sides of the political establishment. That's the thing that you have to craft somebody that Mitch McConnell can't automatically junk. Right, like John Kerry, I think is too partisan. Mitch McConnell won't go for that. I, I just don't think he'll go for it. But I can see them putting Janet Yellen in as a caretaker. Um, when the Republicans take the House and Senate in 2022. 
assuming there are all elections. I think it is a, definitely a, a theory to consider. And I think it, it would have seemed a lot more improbable is if not for the fact that what you just cited, that Mario Draghi was essentially installed in Italy, former head of the European <laughs> Central Bank, you know, put in there. And, and we're seeing huge moves um, happening right now from the central banks. And of course, the central banks are just completely uh, and totally fused with the Davos crowd. If you go and look, for example, at the World Economic Forum, uh, their board of trustees, you have, you know, the head of the IMF, the head of the ECB. Um, you have Mark Carney, former head of the uh, of the Bank of uh, England, I think um, also Ed Canada Cam. Central Bank, right, who's now the climate change uh, envoy for the, or guy for the point man for the UN. Um, <laughs> you know, so it, uh, it's, it's all the same people. Right, right, right. So why wouldn't they want someone uh, like them uh, that is one of them, you know, in as president in the U.S. instead of having to worry about an unreliable uh, puppet type figure? It might just be easier to put uh, one of their people in. And that definitely seems like a really possible scenario that I really haven't heard anyone else um, discuss. And I think it's uh, important we start considering this. Uh, because as we can see now, Biden definitely seems to be uh, being pushed towards the curtain uh, sooner rather than later. Um, just a, a day or two ago, he was meeting with, I mentioned this a second ago or a minute ago, um, the new prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett. He literally fell asleep um, during the televised part of that meeting where press was in the room. Uh, people from the press started to ask him about Afghanistan and he started laughing. I mean, it's just like so farcical that even mainstream media doesn't even like know how to handle it. I mean, you know, it's right. either they've done the 180 and they're criticizing Biden or it's just like this awkward silence. Like maybe our audience won't notice <laughs> like how bad this is Like in this day and age. I think the funny part about this is that, you know, many of them may actually, you know, you got to remember that, you know, none of these organizations are monolithic, right? Right. They're, they're they're driven by the top. They're driven by the people at the top of the yada yada yada. But the, they set the policy. They you know they threat they do the threatening and the compromat and all the rest of it. But the truth of the matter is, is that like you know the average pool reporter at you know for the for a, you know a network or uh, you know, a newspaper doesn't necessarily have to be a true believer in all of this stuff. They can be you know on board with it, right? But like. You know, they don't have to be a member of the club and or they're and they could be sympathetic to the club and on board with the club's goals until the club like embarrasses them. And then their own and then they have to look at themselves and go, what's going on? And I really think that we're close to that moment where a lot of people are standing up going, what are you asking me to swallow? Excuse me. What are you trying to do? Really? You see, I honestly think that at a certain level, the New York money center banks didn't realize that Davos was going to throw them overboard and feed them to Antifa. Do you really? And I, I think that I don't think I don't think they were were, were prepared for that. I, think I, I don't I don't know they, exactly what you mean, but throw them to Antifa. That okay, I so, here, so here's the case. So in the new central bank digital currency realm regime. You have no need for traditional money center banks. The central banks issue the currency to you directly. There's no primary dealer market. There's no debt. There's none of this other. There's none of this nonsense. There is a. There's not a two-tiered monetary system. 
There's a one-tiered monetary system. There's you and the central bank. If you need money, you can get it if you meet the central bank's criteria. We don't need the banks anymore. So these, so the the the, the traditional money center banks that have done all the that that you know controlled the investment, the flow of investment, and all the rest of it. You think they're really going to give up? I wrote about this months ago, saying the goal of this process is to call. I think it's an article called "The Apotheosis of the Banks." Um, the coming apotheosis of the bank, something like that. It's written back, back in like April or something like that. Again, Martin Armstrong has been banging this drum for over for like two years now. He's like, this is the goal to get rid of the Goldman Sachs and the JP Morgans and all the rest of them. We don't need them in tomorrow in, the, in their grand future. We have central bank digital currencies. We just have the, the central banks and they'll just deal with it directly. So all they're going to get thrown to the wolves. So if you want to. So who's the best scapegoat for the fall of capitalism? In the minds of these freaking ideological commies, but then to throw to Occupy Wall Street the very damn banks that they that started this process that's, that they were that they were protesting back in 2008 with good cause, like it all makes perfect sense when you start to think of it in those terms. So like I'm dead serious when I say like they were planning on dragging Jamie Dimon out into the street and you know letting Antifa have their way with him in a you think so? I don't know. I think I think and people like that I are too that protected to get thrown uh, to the wolves. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not Jamie Dimon, but you can definitely t- I can definitely say like the CEO Wells and Bofa and a few others. Like only one or two are going to be un- going to be left unscathed. And that's the other thing to think about. the The Wall Street banking cartel is not a monolithic organization. They all hate each other. It is factional. I mean, that is that is fair. Mm-hmm. So. so you know, yeah, so Goldman might survive. Larry Fink, Jamie Dimon, and Goldman may survive, and everybody else gets thrown under the bus, right? It's very possible to throw some of them under the bus and not others, and yeah, I could right. see that happening, so, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. And I could see that, and, and to me, I think J.P. Morgan will win the race. They've already started sucking up to Davos by, you know, moving their uh, European, uh, they're moving their European uh, operations to um, Frankfurt, by the way. Huh. Go look out. Yeah. Or Paris, Frankfurt or Paris, one or the other. So, yeah, like they're they're moving out of London and they're moving into. So. So what I would tell you is that that's a sign that maybe J.P. Morgan doesn't go under the bus. It does. It, 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 I, I use Morgan because that would be the most dramatic of all of them. Like if Morgan gets thrown under the bus, the whole thing is a big, you know, mouse shirted, mouse suited, like, you know, goose stepping commie takeover. The whole thing. But I don't, I don't know that that's what's going to happen. What I'm telling you is that that's one of the possible scenarios that's on the that – that's the worst oh. case or the end game of that scenario, okay? Well, so some so, of these banks, J.P. Morgan included, um, is – not all of them, though, um, which is why I, I think it's possible that some do indeed get thrown under the bus, um, are, are very closely coordinating with this whole central bank digital currency effort, this whole cyber attack um justification to introduce that and to reset the global economy and all of this stuff um so i think it ultimately comes down may come down to um which wall street banks are are you know deemed uh, not expendable um by you know the people trying to create this whole reset and things like that and i think um jp morgan is one of the more central ones in that um but i you know i mean i could be wrong you know um 
Well, people can read more about this in my uh, Epstein book, but uh, <laughs> uh, very close allies of Leslie Wexner essentially were responsible for installing Jamie Dimon. And of course, after Bear Stearns collapse, Epstein does a lot of his banking there. So they have a lot of, you know, ties there. And, you know, Epstein and, and Wexner too, a lot of um, their uh, <laughs> fortune shifted rather dramatically. So I guess like you could argue that... Um, you know, it's not necessarily set in stone any of this. Um, yeah. But I think they're going to allow some to survive and some to not. That seems most likely to me. No, I, I would agree with that. I want to throw one other uh, thing at you. Just to, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not discounting the uh, is something I said earlier. And I want to just make make sure I made I make the point, which is the following. I said earlier that Putin is about stability. And I mean that in all aspects of this. I do. I think that Putin is worried about cyber attacks absolutely he complains about the government that the u.s government doing cyber attacks against his against his country all the time is he willing to coordinate internationally and show up at the wf meetings about these things absolutely is he going to allow klaus schwab to crash the world you know the 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 the, the global community kind of computing community and then try and reset the world and they not get and, and him not get a kinzal missile up his backside like i think everybody has to take a step back from all of, i just part of me just like i get back to the brass tacks on this and i'm like yeah no i don't think that i think i think putin sends mach 9 missiles into klaus schwab's castle in switzerland and this thing ends if he tries that well and i, I think that that's i, threat, I think that that's he... been put on the table i just i mean part of me just says look that's that's just it's just dumb you cannot do this and expect anybody I just think that part of this, it just feels like too much of a Bond movie to me. Like, I understand that it's all precedent. Like, I, 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 I see the parallels with, 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 with COVID. I see them. And then I see everybody kind of going, you know what, guys? Enough is enough. No, you're not doing this. And they've already tried to kill Putin like half a dozen times and have failed. So, like, I just... Like, I just don't see it. Like, and I don't know that Herman Graf over Suburbank is, you know, is, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I got a, I got a, I got a different read on him, um, than, I, than, than, than what, what you were intimating earlier. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong about this stuff, but I look at what the Russians, how the Russians have. Well, me have, too. I just, um, I have a hard time at this point putting, uh, too much faith in any world leader. Right. Fair enough. Um, Fair. And I think, you know, it is it can it can be tempting to put a lot of faith in them, um, you sure. know, but a lot of these guys have been especially people that have been in power as long as someone like Putin, you know, it's because they do make deals um, at, at the end of the day, how far that'll go, eh, how far he's willing to go with, with the stakes being what they are. You know, all of that, I think, are questions that, you know, we can <laughs> speculate about, um, you know, all day long, but they're they're hard to answer. You can always just say that Putin made the deal of you can leave. You guys can do whatever you want to each other, but leave Russia out of it. Because if, if we see one, we see one deni denial of service attack across across into Russian IP space. I'm sorry, you're getting missiles. Maybe, but uh, that that's that's it's an act of war. I mean, he's made it abundantly clear that even cyber attacks are acts of war. Whitney, he said this directly. 
And he said it in front of the Russian people. Well, the the U.S. also made that claim too, right? And probably most of the cyber attacks go on that have gone on in the U.S. Uh, a lot of them seem to be very false flaggy, uh, which is very, uh, you know, very creepy. And then, you know, the they can trigger that, I forget what article it is of NATO, the one where it's an, an attack on one, it's an attack on all of them. At Article 5. Article 5, that's what I thought. So, you know, that a cyber attack can trigger that. So I think it's uh, being used by... Um, you know, that particular thing is being used by, uh, by by both sides there. But, you know, I'm happy to agree to disagree because I know that you follow Russian politics and international geopolitics in a way that I don't anymore. I mean, I did a lot more when I worked yeah. at MedPress. Um, so I'm a much more of a casual observer of some of those trends. I mean, obviously, I can't ignore it because of what I continue uh, to work on now. But I'm definitely not as steeped in, in this stuff as I... As I was before, so, you know, I'm very happy uh, to be wrong, but I'm also um, <laughs> probably as far as you can be in the cynical side of things, so. I, I, I honestly think that there's room for both of us to be partially right here. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I, 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 your skepticism is, was well-founded, right? And I, I, I agree that, you know, don't put too much faith in anybody. But the other thing to think about is that at the end of the day, we have 20 years of, of, of behavior that we can look at from Putin. This is, this is kind of what I'm basing this on. And I understand, and he understands probably better than any other world leader at this moment in time, what the stakes are, because he's worked under the most extreme of conditions to, to protect Russia from outside forces, including Davos, including the United States, including even China and other, and, and everybody else. So if there's anyone who has a finally honed sense of where his red lines are at this moment in time, it would be him. And his behavior has been consistent with defending Russia and by extension create keeping. And I see another, another, just one last point. And it's a very subtle point. Again, Putin understands that he does not want the United States destroyed because, and he doesn't really want Europe to fall into a dark age either. Because if he does, if that happens, then he has no counterbalance against a rising China. When the, if, if the West falls completely, right, all the capital and all the accumulated wealth of the West that's going to flee out of the West, it's going to flow to China. Some of it will flow to Russia and there'll be a golden age for Russia, relatively speaking, but the lion's share of it will go to China. And that will put Russia in a subordinate position to China that it will not, in, in a long sense, that will, it will not be able to uh, resist, okay? And that is not Putin's plan to make Russia into China's subordinate, okay? So he understands that the game board has to, that all the players at the board have to be kind of maintained while still, and it's and maybe he's, it's quixotic, his, his, his goals, right? Maybe he won't be able to pull this off. But if anybody in, on the world stage today understands the game at this level, it's Vladimir Putin. And is prosecuting his policy in, in this manner, it's Vladimir Putin. And I, I can tell you that nothing I've seen from him tells me otherwise. And I watch him very carefully. So that's why I say things, that's why I say some of the things I say about Putin. Say, no, I just think he'll I think I just think he'll threaten Schwab and his family and Gates and everybody else, and like the Spetsnats will come and they'll just kill everybody. And then that well, and this will end. yeah, we'll see. So I mean, that'll be that, and it'll be done, and there won't be a cyber. They like they've done the cyber polygon event. I don't think it's actually going to happen. I am ninety percent convinced. Well, that would definitely be much uh, better for everyone. I think if it doesn't Absolutely. happen, it obviously remains to be 
remains to be seen. All of this stuff, um, you know, exactly how this stuff pans out. I hope you're wrong. You're you're wrong. I hope I'm right in this in this instance. But I suspect you are. I suspect they're still going to try. I think the plans are there, and at the first moment's notice, when they're willing to go scorched earth. So I don't think I think they're going to try. Well, I think, I think something... the more the the Davos crowd, the elite, whatever, um, right. feel like they uh, are losing control and everything is slipping through their fingers. They're going to be. They're just going to throw everything they have at everyone. <laughs> that's what. That's what <laughs> um, and that's know, that's that's, that's on that's unsettling. I think, and I think. Yeah, no, um, it's very. I think that's a real possibility, but, um, well, we've been, uh, talking for quite a while and this is, uh, definitely a little longer than my, my usual podcast. We definitely covered a lot more ground, uh, than I had anticipated, which is nice. And I think it was, uh, probably, um, a different episode for some of my listeners because, you know, a, a different kind of, uh, of discussion, but I, 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 I enjoyed it and I thought it was, um, you know, refreshing to have a different take on some stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, no, absolutely, and and I'm happy to uh, happy to do it, and I, you know, again, we're in we're in ninety percent agreement about where things are, and uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm it's it's the but it's those last ten percent that that could determine where we wind up in two years. No, but I think it's really important to have you know di- di- differing viewpoints and bring in new perspectives and reevaluate um, where you know, where we stand and where we think things are going. Things are always in flux. And I think, you know, uh, our audiences are, you know, ultimately benefit from this. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, I mean, all I can tell you to to your, to your, to your listeners today is, as, as always, um, next week I could get a data point that changes everything I just said. Yeah. I mean, that's the nature of where we are. That is the nature of where we are right now. And everything is fluid. And I'm hoping that that is not the case because the, because the scenario I have constructed now is kind of the best case scenario. And that's still a terrible scenario. It's still bad. Like it's still awful. I mean, it, no matter how, how you slice this, it's going to be bad. Just, just playing out the, the, the damage that's been done already is a bad scenario for, for millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. And, that they want to do more is unf- uh, is unfathomable, and I think that there's, there comes a point where I think everybody kind of s- takes a step back and goes, "Oh yeah, I just don't. I don't think that's what we're going to do." So I'm hoping that that's what happens here. Cooler heads have prevailed in the past many times, but um, you know, maybe I'm I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm still just too hopeful for this. I, you know, and I'm not being. <laughs> hey, well, there, it's never been a bad thing to have hope about a situation like this, especially um, given how things are now. So I don't think anyone will hold that against you. If anything, I'm on the other end, probably too cynical. I get that a lot. <laughs> so you know, what's more likely than anything else is that it's somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. No. Maybe. Maybe it is. And and uh, I, I we'll see. And let's let's hope that you know. I mean, but you have to, someone has to take the, the position of being uh, as cynical as possible because that's the only way we're going to find out, you know, that's why you do what you do and why you're so good at what you do. Because, um, and, and, and I mean that sincerely because at a certain level, you, someone has to go that route and bring that information to light and go and do that digging. And then for the rest of us to go look at and go, yeah, no, Whitney's really onto something here, but I think she may be going a little too far. Fair enough. And then we'll talk about mm. it. And then we'll see, what, <laughs> we'll see where we are. That's I know. Fine. It's, it's, it, 
that's that's our job. It's like our job is to talk to each other and figure out where you know and to and to and to synthesize. Right. Well, this is a separate issue where I think there are people who get you know have their work challenged in that way and don't see it as this is a collective effort to try and figure out what the heck is going on and how do we stop this madness. Um, which is my personal perspective. There's people that take it, you know, as sort of like an affront to uh, them as a person or, you know, their ego or whatever. And I'm definitely um, not in that category (laughs) because I definitely, you know, am happy to be wrong about some of the apocalyptic stuff that tends to be a running theme in some of my um, (laughs) reports in the past year and a half or so. Um, you know, so, um, but I think, you know, uh, we're all just trying to bring information to light and uh, let people know what's going on. And the best way to derail um, nasty, evil plans is to, uh, you know, expose to bring them, them to light. Exactly. So, you know, I, I honestly, a lot of the things I wrote write about, I really hope they don't get off the ground and they don't happen and they don't advance. But I think it's, uh, you know, raising awareness about them is uh, important, right? Um and I'm always <laughs> happy to be wrong. Um, but anyway, um, I do have to wrap this up here. Um, so I, I want to thank you a lot, Tom, for coming on, uh, for having a yep. very far-reaching discussion about about Afghanistan, but also a lot more, uh, which I think, like I said earlier, I think will be really refreshing to some of um, my listeners because, um, you know, a lot of the topics you brought up and the geopolitics stuff hasn't really been um, talked about that much in my podcast recently. Um, And, uh, you know, this is definitely a much more diverse episode than some of, in in terms of topics covered um, than some of my previous ones. So, um, uh, yeah, so thanks again. And uh, thanks for everyone for... uh, tuning in especially to subscribers who support this podcast um as always the first couple days of this podcast after its publication it will be uh, for subscribers only either on rockfin or through the unlimited hangout website after that it is publicly available on uh on those platforms uh soundcloud and all other podcasting apps you can follow it there um so thanks so much for listening and catch you next time